Welcome to the Lawn Business Podcast, Episode 4. I'm Anthony Verna, partner at Kravitz and Verna PLLC. You can reach me at averna at kravitzverna.com if you have a legal question, and anthony at vernalaw.com if you have a radio question. This episode was recorded outside at the request of my guest, uh, Daniel Salicito, an attorney who's had a very long and distinguished career. So you will hear some outside noises, and I hope uh, that doesn't affect the content of the episode. Thanks very much for listening, and hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. I'm Anthony Verna. I'm here with my good friend, Dan Salicito. Dan, am I still allowed to call you attorney at law? No, attorney at law retired. <laughs> emeritus attorney at law. How does that sound? Emeritus, yes. I am definitely like Pope Benedict. I am emeritus attorney at law. Dan has uh, had a long career of litigation and, and heartache and heartburn. I, I've, I've done, I have a legal career of about 43 years, of which every single day was spent in litigation. I was not a transactional lawyer. I didn't do wills. I didn't do uh, uh, real estate closings. I did only lawsuits. I told my clients, unless it begins with a summons and complaint, it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> so so let's start here, uh, because a lot of businesses are sued every day. So when a business receives that summons and complaint, and that business is now a defendant in a lawsuit... What are some steps that you think that business should take besides picking up the phone and calling the lawyer, lawyer immediately? Uh, I would think, first of all, we ought to backtrack a little. Okay. Generally, commercial disputes between businesses start with an exchange of letters. You were supposed to ship me 100 sacks of flour. I only got 90. Where's the other 10? Right. Or sometimes with my clients, we think you're you're infringing upon right. our so, client's trademark. Exactly. Please tell please tell us how much of this you've sold. Yeah. So at that stage, a client of mine who was a small business, and I represented many small businesses, I would expect to call me on the phone. If if you get a letter which says, "Unless we can work this out, I'm going to have to sue you." that is a litigation letter and that should immediately be turned over to an attorney now if we go to the next step the next step your opponent gets is dissatisfied with your answer now their attorney writes to you that's called an attorney demand letter that to me if you are a businessman and a, and a, and a good businessman that absolutely requires you like a forcing bid in bridge <laughs> you have to then call your attorney once you get that attorney demand letter, if you expect that you have a regular attorney who does your litigation or who does all your legal work, he is going to expect that if you get a lawyer's letter from from another party, you will contact him immediately. Because now, in effect, the clock is running, the tape is running. Right. Now we're making legal history. So once you... When you get the letter from your opponent and it looks like a threat of litigation, you're infringing our copyright or our trademark or, you know, you, you sent us the wrong goods or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you're a heads-up businessman, you might call your lawyer at that point. That's not a bad idea. 
and then he can help you draft your non-lawyer answer to that to try to keep it out of litigation. You, you know, I also or, think- But once you get the letter from the other side's lawyer, then you have to be crazy not to contact <laughs> your lawyer. Well, of course. But I also think this goes to a, another area that you and I have experience in, which is that if an attorney is involved for the other side, that two attorneys expect to act professionally to each other before any hard feelings (laughs) actually set in. My experience over some 6,000 matters, uh, about 300 Navy criminal when I was in JAG, and and the rest of them civil, uh, mostly commercial disputes, antitrust, employment, Mm -hmm. uh, contract, construction. I've done just about every kind of civil litigation there is, except some specialized areas like tax and matrimonial, which I don't do. Uh, the um, I forgot where we were going. With that. <laughs> uh, the uh, that, that attorneys are gener- generally like to act professional. I would say to each other of, of those matters. Let's say about five thousand civil matters. I have been on the most excellent terms with my opponents. When we fight, we fight because that's what we're paid to do. Otherwise, we're cordial to each other. We are professional litigators. You and your corporate opponent <laughs> are businessmen who have gotten angry at each other. Right. You get angry. We don't get angry. Uh, your object is to f- achieve justice or vengeance or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Our object is to resolve the matter as quickly as possible. You know, with the, with at least expense to our client and, right. and as good a result as we can get. So, so from a philosophical standpoint, if it's going to cost X to settle a matter, even even if you think that it's not the most wonderful settlement, if it's going to cost 20x or 40x or 100x to get to, to the end of litigation, because that, be, that has to be the attorney's first job, is to say it's going to cost you 100x. I have, since I was in private practice, and even when I worked for firms, I have told clients who told me, money is no object, I want to vindicate <laughs> my rights, I'm angry at this person... I said, as an attorney, if I'm being on hours as opposed to a contingent fee, I should be willing to do anything you want me to do as long as you're going to pay me. But I get no professional satisfaction out of spending $20,000 to recover $5,000. To me, that's an idiot's job. I would feel like a bad lawyer. And in fact, in my private practice, I have told clients to leave when they told me, no, they didn't care if I spent $20,000 to recover the 5000 I said, well, find some other fool who's willing to have that kind of reputation. I, I don't think that it does my reputation or even my sense of professional pride any good to spend more on the lawsuit than the client can possibly recover. And I won't. And I don't think any good barrister, that is a, <laughs> an attorney who specializes only in litigation, would want to do that because it makes you it, it ruins your reputation don't forget the the even in new york which is the biggest trial jurisdiction in the country the trial bar is not that large people know each other and and you get a reputation i do collections for a court reporter who's based on long island and she says that her payments short of litigation short of even threatening litigation have improved because the, the clients there are all also trial lawyers. Right. <laughs> and, and the word gets around. They know that Mrs. X 
has an attorney and that he will sue them if they right. don't pay, and so they pay. And to L- me, lawyers don't like to be sued by other lawyers. That's for sure. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. And I, I and I, I've told clients that one I remember a major uh, matter uh, involving international trade, and I told the clients, "Well, you may be willing to to look a fool, mm-hmm. but this is New York County." And I practice here, and I'm not willing to look a fool. Right. So I'm not going to spend $10,000 of your money over a $2,000 claim. Right. Because then I'll look like an idiot. And sure. I have other cases here. This may be your only case you ever take the trial, but I'm in court every day. Apart from, from an economic um, viewpoint, when you know a party is sued, so a party is now a defendant in this lawsuit, is there specific advice maybe over documentation? That, 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 that you would give? Absolutely. And in federal antitrust cases where I began my practice some 40 years ago at the old firm of Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Irvine, which doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> last name, last name, last name, and last name. <laughs> yeah, General Wild Bill Donovan. Well, they were famous people. So of course. General Wild Bill Donovan, who founded the OSS and who led the fighting 69th <laughs> in the First World War. Um, in an antitrust case, you get a federal court order saying you can't destroy any documents. But I tell you, as a lawyer, that if you tell a judge that as soon as you got the complaint, you went out and trashed some files because you thought they might bear badly on your case, it will be held seriously against you. In a federal case, like an antitrust case, it is a felony to destroy documents once a case starts. But you should regard everything that you have that bears on a dispute as as something that has to be saved once you get a right. lawyer's letter from the other side when um sometimes during during discovery and for those who don't know discovery is is gathering evidence before a trial begins and both sides can ask sometimes the other side always uh, sometimes the other side asks please give us your clients document retention policy. And I would say most businesses just don't have a document retention policy. It depends, Anthony, on the size of the business. Most Fortune 500 companies do have a document retention policy. Most uh, local candy stores, (laughs) even even a local uh, business that makes macaroni or a big commercial bakery, they don't have a document retention policy. I mean, there are even tech companies that don't have documentation. But a major corporation with public stock, publicly traded stock, almost always has a document retention. What you're, 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 you folks are thinking, you business folks, what is a document retention? <laughs> a document retention policy, my clients at, at a certain large communications company used to say, should be called a document destruction policy. Right. What it, it's, it is a public statement that you put in your records that your policy is all documents will be retained for at least five years. What it is there for is to dispel the notion that you went out and destroyed paper because you were afraid of a dispute. So what you're telling the world is, we keep everything for five years. At the end of five years, we get rid of everything. Unless we have, and the document retention policy should say this, unless there is a pending lawsuit or we have some other document retention order, all r- commercial documents that are not tax-related or whatever your other exceptions are, 
Obviously, you're not going to destroy your trade secret documents. <laughs> uh, all general, run-of-the-mill, telephone bills, whatever, whatever. At the end of five years, we destroy them all. And why is that important? It's important so that you can negate the claim that you went out and found everything having to do with this dispute and burned it before the court could get their hands on it. How, how about efforts in finding documents related to a particular litigation? Like quite often, uh, you know, even smaller companies just don't care where the contract was stored or uh, maybe they have trouble getting it out of storage for, for whatever reason. If you expect to successfully prosecute or defend the litigation, then you better know where all relevant papers. Uh, otherwise, settle, because you should not go near a court. If, if this is a contract dispute and you don't know where the contracts are, you're not really giving the judge a very good impression. And in most jurisdictions now, even New York uh, State, you have the same judge through litigation, through through discovery, as Anthony was telling, talking about discovery, until trial. And you get a reputation with that judge. If he thinks you're slip slipshod company and you don't know where your papers are and anything, that mm-hmm. affects your credibility with him. You may wish to try the case to him rather than to a jury. Most right. civil cases are tried to the judge. But you can't do that if you've already made yourself uh, a reputation that you're, you're a slapdash company, you don't know where your papers are, you don't keep track mm-hmm. of things. So... You know, you better plan to settle everything <laughs> early if that's the way you are. Or basically, the best advice is don't do that. Right. But, Keep but, good files. Know where your files are. Have a definite policy as to how long you retain things and follow it. If you have a document retention policy and they come in and do discovery and they find stuff that's way beyond what was the discovery date, then they're going to say to the judge, this is no policy. This is like a meaningless document because they have all kinds of things of all ages except anything having to do with my lawsuit. <laughs> uh, really, the best sentence for, for everything that we just talked about is that being successful in court has to do a lot with what's done way before oh, a company is ever in court. This is why, and I know that small businessmen can't afford this, but this is why major companies have a legal department and have an in-house litigation department, which I did that work for 10 years at a company which I think you might know the name of. <laughs> and uh, You certainly don't have to mention it. but And there were, there were some 60 of us and, and all over the country, and we had divisions and they all had lawyers because you want to catch this early on. You want to have good document policies so they don't, or there aren't mistakes. I wanted, I, it brought up a case in that uh, circumstance, which I think is good advice generally for people. My clients came to me with a very bad document for the purposes of defending an antitrust case in a Fortune 10 company. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, well, what should we do about this? I said, well, first thing you're not going to do is tell people to destroy that document because we have two or three pending antitrust cases and several overlapping retention orders, plus in a company with more than a thousand employees, there are copies of it every place. The comp- Anthony has told me, as my tech expert, <laughs> that even the Xerox machine can be have its brain washed and and, and, a- and, and recover documents. Well, sure, photoco- pho- some modern, many modern photocopiers keep 
a record, uh, electronic electronically, record. you know, on their hard drives. So it's for you know for easy recovery. So my advice to my client was, the person who wrote the document was a let's say a second level employee, and my client is a third level employee. I said you get your fourth level employee to write a letter saying the second level employee was wrong that that is not the company's policy, and you attach a copy of that. That over well, that uh, overriding document to every copy in the files of the existing. What you do not do is say find all those memos and destroy them because right. you'll never find them right. all. And then the government will find the memo saying this. This actually happened years <laughs> ago in a patent-related antitrust case in the 1930s. An old partner of mine at Donovan Leisure told me this story, and he was actually there. A document was marked by some non-lawyer executive. Burn all copies. Wouldn't the <laughs> Department of Justice love to get their hands on this? Even and the they 30s. did with the annotation <sighs> on it. Wow. So do not create bad documents. And if you create them, disavow them formally. There's a way to do everything. The way is not to... Go out through the company and find every copy because you'll never get every copy. Some idiot will have taken one home or, or use it to wrap his lunch. It'll always turn up. So you may assume that the government is going to get a copy of it. And with that copy should be a copy saying this wasn't company right. policy. This was a low-level person who made a mistake. And, and, and even in today's world where you know every single email is saved for five for five years in many companies and therefore every piece of communication and every thought is saved and then produced as as a document in litigation it 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 raises the multitudes this uh recent uh i don't know what to describe it as uh revolution uh, no <laughs> kerfuffle in the irs uh charitable uh exemption area was a very instructive for businessmen because these emails were all over the place. And not only were the emails an issue or what they may or may not have said, but the fact that when they were asked for by Congress, the IRS said, we can't find them or we don't know if we have them. That is not an acceptable answer, not to Congress and not to a federal judge or to a state judge in a commercial matter. You're a business. You have, let's say, 100 employees, and you're an investment of several hundred thousand dollars. You can't tell the judge, oh, well, we just don't know what we did with it. Right. You know, you're just going to ruin your reputation for the rest of the lawsuit. I'll tell you what I find. Um, in, in intellectual property matters, a lot of times when a trademark is conceived, a lot of businesses don't hire a marketing company or they they don't really have meetings about it so you're not finding a lot of documents on why or how and sometimes it's just up to somebody's memory to say why and how a particular mark was chosen or why a particular business decision was 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 made how should a business handle that particular instance in litigation where documents just aren't just aren't created my wife of 30 years or so is an epidemiologist, a nurse who does infectious disease control policy for hospitals. She's now in her third hospital. 
uh, Christ Hospital in Jersey City. And she always says, document, document, mm -hmm. document. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the nursing field and the medical field and the hospital field are constantly subject to medical malpractice claims. She's also subject to claims from the, from the Department of Health and from the uh, Centers for Disease Control mm -hmm. as to tracking infectious diseases. The answer is every important fact. That's why you have a medical record. Right. That's why my wife is always writing policies. Our, we have a policy. If a sponge is dirty, it's thrown away. That is so that you don't stand there and, and the regulator says to you, well, what do you do with all these dirty pieces of gauze? Well, I don't know. Right. That's not, that is <laughs> not an acceptable answer. The answer <laughs> is, on page 21, you'll see of our manual, right. it says all contaminated gauze is <laughs> to be turned over to a medical supply uh, destruction right. company. There are special medical waste disposal companies, by the sure. way, that do that. But uh, I, I agree with my wife 100%. She would have made a good lawyer. Document, document, document. Especially in your field of copyright and trademark, where the issue is how long ago did you adopt this mark? How right. long ago did you have this work? Uh, right. You know, you know, maybe a business needs to set up a, a, a board meeting or, or a upper management meeting and create notes. And so, you know, we're considering, you know, trademark brand name one, brand name two, brand name three. Uh, and and here are the pros and the cons of each of them. And here's, you know, here's what a marketing company, instead of just naming it, I was, go through a process. I was doing some research, you may remember, Anthony, about three or four years ago on a historical topic. And I sent Anthony an outline of a proposed book. It never was written, so it's meaningless. But I didn't send it to him for no reason. I wanted to be on record that this concept of this particular book about this particular person was something that I was thinking about, even when I was only thinking about it. Right. Because then when somebody else came who wrote the book two months after me, <laughs> I want to say, well, no, here's a letter to my copyright lawyer saying in 1999 I was thinking about doing a book like wait, this. Wait, wait, I wasn't in law school in 1999. Well, whatever. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, when you are doing something of value like creating a mark or, or some copyrightable work of art or, or literature, then make a record as early as possible, formal record. This is my outline for a book about such and such. This is a mark that we plan to use to put on right. jeans or whatever. Curtains. Sure. But the sooner you have a document with a date on it, the, the stronger your position is against somebody who sure. did it two years later. And then for, for some of these more complex legal decisions, whether it's what's, what's in a contract or an IP decision, uh, having an opinion letter from an attorney helps as, oh, absolutely. as, as well, correct? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. We, uh, we had a presentation at a bar association meeting last night on commercial leasing and all that. The fellow was very good. But I said to him, I hope you occasionally make mistakes because litigators live on the mistakes <laughs> that transactional lawyers make. That was a joke. But generally, people who have a lawyer to write the transaction don't, involve, don't get involved in litigation. It happens. Everybody right. has mistakes and there are disputes. 
but the, the, there is far more litigation where businessmen on both sides have decided they're going to write their own contracts. They're going to do their own uh, trademark application. They're, you know, that way, I don't know, I ain't speak English, I don't need a lawyer. Right. Oh, those people are godsend to litigators like me because <laughs> their transactions always unwind. You can. Why do lawyers use the same will form that there's been since England 500 <laughs> years ago? Because every term in that will has been defined by a court. Yes, you can write your own common sense will, make it all up, using good, honest English, simple English. Every word in that will could lead to a lawsuit that could spend you could spend ten thousand dollars on. But you use the old form. We've already had all those lawsuits. Everybody knows what every word in that will means as a specific meaning defined by courts. That's why lawyers use what's called boilerplate. And I don't know if Anthony has ever previously <laughs> used that term with you, but boilerplate is formal language, which means a specific thing, which has usually been interpreted by many lawsuits, and you use it because everybody on both sides knows what that word, those words mean. If you go off on your own, writing your own document, well, I don't need a lawyer. I can speak English. I'll write whatever right. I want to write. Well, that's fine and dandy, but every word you write is going to be subject to dispute because it's not the traditional language. As, 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 as unintellectual as it may seem, you're much better off with that boilerplate because everybody on both sides of the transaction knows what it means. Uh, the real estate lawyers do this. They... Their closing documents are literally exactly the same in commercial and every commercial lease and every uh, residential lease. They're different between those sure. two, but they're the same language because we know right. what that language and, means. And you and I are sitting in, in New Jersey right now. New Jersey real estate is a very, I, I don't want to say a very niche practice, but certainly when it comes to those forms, it's, it feels radically different than New York real estate. And, of course, the five boroughs of New York City feel radically different than the rest of New York State when it comes to real estate as well. There are two or three areas of the law which are uniquely local. One is real estate. One is wills, trusts, and estates, probate. And the other is matrimonial and family law. Mm -hmm. Those are not areas where the states are similar. They're areas in which every state is different. Some states like Louisiana and California are very different. In the terms, in the area of general, uh, my area, general civil procedure, for many years, New York was very different than right. most of the rest of the country. But as to how things are done in the courts of the state of New York between New York citizens, there's nothing, the federal government has nothing to say about that. And, and, and in these areas, uh, and every business gets into leasing and buying real estate or, or uh, renting a building and all that, those are areas where you not only need a lawyer, but you need a lawyer from the jurisdiction in which you're dealing. If you're a big corporation and you operate in 10 states and you have a general counsel in New York, his advice isn't worth a damn on leasing property in Delaware. And if he's a good lawyer, he's going to tell you, well, you have to get local Delaware counsel. Right. To lease it, certainly to buy. Buying real estate is something that is so local. Yes. Uh, and this was true in England, too. Uh, this, is the, this is law that goes back to the Middle Ages, and every state is different. And, you know, especially if you're in an area which is generally federally regulated, like trademark and copyright, uh, 
don't get the impression that there is some United States law <laughs> as to everything. If you're, it doesn't affect your business, but it affects every person. Your will, your property, right. things you want to leave to your children, things you want held in mm-hmm. trust, that is very local law. If you, I had this happen to a client of mine, if you die in the state of New Jersey and you have property in the state of South Carolina, real estate, a separate probate is opened in South Carolina where that that property is passed under the will in New, in New Jersey mm-hmm. but subject to South Carolina law wow. because each state controls the real estate yes, in their state of course. no matter who owns it you know the the pope could own it or <laughs> the or the king of prussia as far as the, the law concerned New Jersey decides sure. where New Jersey real estate goes mm-hmm. And uh, those areas, real estate, trust and estates, uh, family and matrimonial right. law especially, but even as to civil procedure and contract law, each state has their own little uh, special rules and regulations. In most areas, uh, a general lawyer at a company level, and especially companies that are in a particular industry, their house counsel will know the law as to several right. of the states they operate, even though not lawyers in that state. But when you get into real estate, and I think, like I said, every business is in somehow, I mean, you've got, if you run, run room, you're in, you're in real estate. That is an area where you need a lawyer who is versed in the law of the place where you're operating. You, you know, it's funny that, that you mentioned that you mentioned this, you know, specificities, because I was uh, just asked about making a referral to a North Carolina real estate firm, and we have a colleague in Asheville, North Carolina, I mean, in um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and this particular matter is in Asheville. And uh, the lawyer in Chapel Hill said, well, I can do it, but it's three hours away from me, and there might be some particular, you know, some particularities that just because it's in a different part of the state, we might not be familiar with their custom. You know, even though it's the same state and the same. Interesting. I had the exact same experience in South Carolina. <laughs> I had a client whose mother was from uh, a place down near Charleston in the flats in South Carolina. They died. She had become a New Jersey resident. There was a dispute as to whether South Carolina law applied or whatever. I was going to hire counsel, and I talked to my my cousin lives in Simpsonville, which is up in the mountains. It was very heavily northern now area of businesses and whatnot. I talked to her lawyer, and he told me the same thing that Anthony just told you. I could do it, but aren't you better off to go down to right. that county, which has only got 6,000 people and five lawyers? Aren't you better to get one of those lawyers? And that's exactly what we did, and we ultimately prevailed in our right. case. Right. So, you know, so if a business is getting sued, I think... Um, you know, just to kind of wrap wrap up some ideas here. Uh, one, obviously, hopefully, the proper procedures are are put in place before litigation ever Standard begins. Standard procedures, right? And 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 while number two, speaking to your business attorney always makes sense, and having that that person intervene and represent the business makes sense. But that goes with making sure the proper procedures are in place anyway. And then uh, certainly number three is making sure that all documents relevant to that proceeding are found 
and identified. But of course, that still relates to having the proper procedures in place way before <laughs> litigation Absolutely. ever begins. Absolutely. And let's try to remember what we said at the very beginning. The final red flag for you as a businessman, when you get a letter from the opposition's lawyer saying, Mr. X tried to talk to you, you couldn't work this out, now I'm telling you, unless we can work out something, I'm going to take you. That's called a, litig- that's a litigation letter, a lawyer's demand letter. That is the last chance. Then you must contact your lawyer because your lawyer is entitled to know what's going on from the beginning. And as far as the lawsuit's concerned, that is that lawyer's demand letter. That is the beginning of litigation, even though you're not in the courts yet. At that point, now it's time to call your lawyer. Or if you don't have one, <laughs> find one. Dan, uh, thanks very much for, for coming. I really enjoyed it. Attorney at law emeritus. Emeritus, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I am. Uh, attorney at law retired. After 43 years, and uh, I hope that I've been of some help to your clients. (laughs) All right, Dan. Thanks very much.